And we are live with our 50th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back. Uh, this is episode number 50. We're excited to, to be here and that everybody's joining us. We've got Eric on today with us, who I've known for a while. We'll get into that little a little bit. We do have a couple of announcements. Um, first of all, our course, uh, the Secure Code Review course, did get picked up for AppSec Global in Tel Aviv in May. So any of our listeners that are making that or you know spread the word that 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 we will be there we'd like to see people um, during the conference so we'll be around uh, exploring the beach apparently in tel aviv i've never been there so i'm excited about it um and i think that's uh, like that's it as far as the, the announcements for today right ken is there anything else that we had that we needed to mention yeah um sorry my my it's a little choppy for me for whatever reason um so it seems like we're all having internet issues today. So this should be interesting. We'll see how this goes. Um, yeah, so I don't think we have any more announcements. Um, I know we're, well, actually, I mean, I finally booked travel for local Boca sex. So I'm guaranteed to be there, bringing the whole family out. That's good. Yeah, no, I, yeah, you can't complain. Gotta have that free time. Um, so, I mean, I guess the only thing is uh, we've, you know, we've got the AppSec Minute today, so we were going to cover, um, for those who don't know, we're going to cover the um, top 10 2018 web hacking techniques uh, that came out of Portsmouth that was written up by uh, James Kettle. Uh, today is number eight. Um, so, Seth, should I just roll right into it and talk about it? Yeah, um, I don't think there's any reason that we... We don't need to. Um, so yeah, let's let's jump into it. That uh, we discussed last week, the first two from that uh, those top ten web hacking techniques, and those were pretty interesting. And I know Ken, you've done some research on this one. You actually went and watched the video, so I'll let you kind of jump into that, um, and then I'll ask questions as we move through it. Cool. Yeah. So the um, the research comes, and the presentation I watched came from Robin. Uh, Paragly, I believe is the right way you say it, Robin Paragly. Uh, so this is actually pretty interesting. There's, there's. I'm going to break this up into two, like two different. So they call it like double, double prepare statements. Basically, is what what the kind of title is, and there's a reason for that. So initially, there was a SQL injection vulnerability in WordPress and. Um, so, you know, if you put in a percent sign uh, effectively, you could um, start SQL injecting into these prepare statements. So the fix was to anytime there's a percent sign, create a 66 uh, character length random identifier. And that random identifier uh, basically is, is how is a substitute for that percent sign. And that that's the fix for the initial SQL injection, right? Which is a little weird, but cool. Like no more percent sign being able to, and by the way, it's a pretty high level summary. So um, I definitely think you should check out the, the video. So that's the first part and that's the first part's mitigation. So now we need to know 
a separate piece about WordPress. And that is that um, to deal with outside of the scope of SQL injection, just normal behavior to deal with uh, latency and slow DB queries. What what the what the application does um, is it actually stores that SQL like SQL queries in the database, um, and it serializes that SQL query. It's like a cache, right? So basically, you don't have to keep running the same query over and over again. If you have an expensive SQL query, you run it once, it gets cached, and then it's sub subsequent um, same re uh, same SQL requests don't like go through the whole running of this again, right? So the first time uh, that SQL query is cached and then um, it's done, when, the way it's cached is actually serialized and stored in the database and then unserialized and pulled out later when that second query runs. So you're starting to see set something here with the, un, the, the serialization, deserialization where it's gonna maybe get interesting. So well, yeah, I mean serialization vulns as it is are you know dangerous, right? So 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 I'm assuming there's some sort of dangerous function in there as far as like something that they can insert that will you know pop some sort of RCE inside that prepared state or inside that serialized object or what's going on there. Yep, that's exactly what it is. So the way it works is now remember because we're talking about caching we are taught and it's called the double prepare it's to prepare sql statements that ultimately occurred for this to work so what they the the, the part that i'm a little the, that's a little weird is that i guess the so you shove that you put the sql query in you shove that into the database it's serialized when it gets unserialized there's an expectation of like 100 characters and i Supposedly, um, the expectation, so like, you know, that, that UUID is supposed to be 66 characters. And this is the where it gets a little weird, but basically like a pre-pending 65 character like UUID, the remaining 35 uh, characters can be user control. So imagine the serialization format kind of looks like almost like a JSON blob where it's got, you know, the curly braces and it's got a key and some values and stuff like that, right? That's or that's roughly how it looks. So what happens is, is you, as an attacker, you run your query with this. Uh, so you create the, the, the user input is going to have the 65 character random, whatever. And then after that is going to be the actual like um, serialized RCE, the thing that's going to run some PHP code. That's, that's the bit. So you serialize it that bit in the format that PHP uses. So you got this 100 character SQL string, you run it once, we'll do nothing. And the reason is, is that at this point, it's just serialized, it's running the query and it's just serializing it to the database. But on the second time you like load that query, well, it's being unserialized. So the user input that's stored in the database that's in the PHP serialized uh, format is going to be deserialized, uh, rec recognized as PHP code and executed for your remote code uh, execution. Dang. Yeah, so it's almost like a stored serialization form, <laughs> you know, yeah. somewhere to store cross-site scripting. Yeah, like I yeah, wonder I mean, how many situations where that where where it exists outside of WordPress, right? Did he go into that at all? Right? Was this just specific to this instance of WordPress, or was this like, hey, all MySQL or Postgres does it? Uh, I pretty much stopped once I understood the, 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 the vulnerability well enough to explain it to other people simply enough, you know, that it's not confusing. 
um, what's that quote about? If you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. Uh, so I don't know, maybe in the last 10 minutes of the video or whatever that's discussed, which I'll, I'll, um, post a link right now to the, to the video. Oh yeah. Oh, so I did it in our Slack channel. So yeah. So sorry, Eric. So, yeah. So this is Eric. So I got a question about that. So is this a bug in PHP's deserialization or a bug in WordPress's implementation of deserialization? Because the idea that when you deserialize something from the database and say, oh, wait, this is PHP, I'm just going to execute it, that's batshit crazy. Like, that's a terrible way to implement a deserializer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, I guess you could argue that for sure. I mean, it's common to see, it's somewhat common, unfortunately, to see, I, I, guess, it, I guess it depends. You're... You're looking at, I, I do think it's a little strange, but it is, the expectation is that the SQL query is safe, right? So the SQL query has to be executed as code in the way that they've developed it. So to pull that out and to run that SQL quote code, um, I'm, I mean, you can certainly do it another way, but I think that was their, like, their efficient way of doing it, is like pulling the SQL query from the database and executing whatever it is as code with the expectation that it was safe, which is obviously a very flawed expectation. So, um, yeah, I guess it's, yeah, it it's be, both. I mean, it almost sounds like it's PHP-esque, right? So that you're taking yeah. this, like it's the underlying database library is taking this SQL, like it's preparing this statement and then serializing it, storing it in the database, pulling it out and using that instead of recreating the object every time that you, you call that, or you want to create that, or you want to call that SQL object or that, yeah, right, that SQL query object. Is that, am I understanding that right, Ken? Yeah, I mean, they don't, they, they expect to, yeah, they never expected for you to be able to um, append anything to that, like, basically, they expected that, um, that little, you, you, a couple things. One, they expected that ID to not ever, like, be an issue, right, like, at all. And that there would be no additional content. There would just be that ID. That was the first expectation. And then the, the uh, which is obviously incorrect, um, they definitely didn't expect you to be, as a user, controlling the remaining 35 characters to load some PHP code. Um, and then, yeah, like, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is, like, user supplied input being allowed to both set, you know, some RCE code and then, of course, the application being able to read it in. I think you make a good point, though, Eric, because, and by the way, we'll properly introduce Eric here in a minute. Um, I think you make a good point because, like, for instance, um, with with Ruby on Rails, when it was discovered that you know, like, hey, Marshall deserialization is unsafe if you take user supplied input, and people were putting like their session secret in the source code, and that's being exfiltrated one way or another. Then um, the default for Rails was okay. Let's stop doing Marshall deserialization when we read cookies, which are technically user supplied in input, even though like you need the secret to forge those cookies. Uh, let's stop doing that in favor of JSON uh, serialization. And Python's, or sorry, Django did the same thing with uh, full deserialization and um, moving to the JSON format as well. Yeah, so it's those, I mean, it's those serialization libraries that are being used in multiple different frameworks. Um, I, I mean, that, that is pretty innovative, or like it's very interesting, that, like the whole double prepare, the fact that it's got to be cached and deserialized for it to execute. Um, I'm pretty sure that's why it ended up on this list of, you know, top 10 web ha hacking techniques. Because if it was just a strict deserialization vulnerability, it probably would have been discovered earlier. But 
Well, cool. Um, good. Uh, and you know, maybe in another uh, AppSec minute, we can talk more about deserialization and show some examples of that. Uh, since it is in the OWASP top 10 now, <clears throat> I was actually reviewing that last night. So anyway, <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, introduce Eric at this point. Um, thanks, Eric, for joining us. Uh, Eric Heitzman um, currently works at Security Compass, right? Yep, that's right. Um, I've known Eric for a number of years. We first ran in, into each other when I was back at Fishnet on-site with a client and we were evalu evaluating SAS vendors or static analysis tools. Um, and Eric came in with the Ounce Lab folks and uh, we were both stuck in the middle of nowhere for a couple of weeks. And so we hung out together and it was <laughs> it was quite fun, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, at, at this point that was what, probably at least like 10, 12 yeah. years ago? Uh, yeah, nine to 11 years ago, yeah, something like that. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, and, and since then, we've you know both kind of bounced around to different places. Um, yeah. Uh, so you know, Eric, if you want to just kind of give us to start with your background, what you're currently doing with Security Compass, and we can roll from there. Um, okay. So um, my background begins in computer science and consulting. Right. So I started off at Foundstone Professional Services with the organization founded by Chris Prosize. And you know, I was on the ethical hacking side of the house, not the founder. I remember that that product. Uh, did some again. I was on the consultant product, um, doing proactive work mostly, and transitioned over time from consulting into. Um, static analysis. So the first time I ever worked for a software company was with Ounce Labs. And then Ounce Labs got acquired by IBM. And then I did a brief stint at Qualys, and now I'm at Security Compass. And so the arc of this career basically follows um, my like deep interest in ethical hacking. Um, I did that for like six or seven years, maybe, yeah, give or take. And then um, I got a little bit stymied with um, the lack of technology in the consulting projects that I was doing. Like, so we, we were manually hacking web applications, right? We had nothing but, yeah. you know, Paros proxy or something like that in the early days. Um, and I was like, you know, when the static analysis opportunity came along, it seemed like an opportunity to apply some computer science and some automation and some scalability and like, you know, let's secure hundreds of applications at a time per human, not, you know, one application at a time. Um, and so I kind of really bought into that scalability story. Um, and the company that I'm with now, Security Compass, um, appeals to me for much the same reason. Um, you know, we're doing where Security Compass basically helps organizations that write a lot of software, so mostly enterprises, but not exclusively. Um, so organizations that write a lot of software, um, we're trying to train thousands of developers. We're trying to you know improve their processes at large scale. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so over the course of my career, I've actually gone less technical and more scalable and automated. Um, which I know is kind of backwards from a lot of the folks on the podcast here. 
No, that's, I mean, that's an interesting thing. And I, I know, I know we talked about it a little bit pre podcast before we jumped live. Um, how, you know, your career, you know, initially that, that, that time at Foundstone was more, you know, in depth. I mean, you talked Paris proxy. I like, I remember fondly web scarab and some of those other tools that we used back then. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, but it is definitely better nowadays. <laughs> But yeah, um, well, it's somewhat embarrassingly, I haven't really kept up on all the manual tools. So like, I mean, still, if you put me in front of an application and you're like, hey, can you hack this? I'd be like, sure, let me just download Paros. <laughs> <laughs> even though it's super ancient, it probably doesn't even work. <laughs> go, go grab Fiddler, you know, insert it into IE and you'll be good right. to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, but I mean, you know, Bash still works, Netcat still works, you know, so I can still grep stuff, so. <laughs> Yeah, you'd, you'd be surprised how much of the manual stuff hasn't changed, right? There are some automated tools there that help out quite a bit, right? I mean, Burp Suite yeah. Pro is right. definitely the, the favorite right now. And you've got yeah, Zap. of course. But. Right, yeah. And I really like the Zap uh, heads-up display talk that um, David from Segment is going around giving. That's some excellent work that he's done. If nobody's, if anybody hasn't seen that yet, he's got a cool like UI um, overlay layer so that you can control zap while looking at the app that you're actually targeting as opposed to like toggling back and forth between the app and the proxy. It's pretty slick. Um, and the technical implementation was pretty uh, fiendish as well. So hats off to David for that. Yeah. Yeah. That, one, that one's interesting. Yeah. And his collaborators too. I don't, didn't catch their names. <laughs> we just know that Dave's the one that's giving the talk, right? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know he did implement like one of those, I was like, oh, I remember web scarab days. I could always like show uh, show comments, and it would pop up the little thing. So he added that to the heads up display for me. I was like, sweet, thanks, man. Yeah, but your comment about like you'd be surprised about how much stuff still works, I think, is totally spot on. I mean, we have you know fifty consultants in our organization, and you know I like to hang out with them as much as I can and get beers and pick their brains. Like, what are you doing? What are the tools? You know, and um, it's actually kind of rare that I hear about a new tool, you know, for the most part, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's all the same stuff I was doing. So I feel like I could get right back into it if I needed to, but anyway, not my job anymore. Evan Johnson actually put out on Twitter uh, uh, and like, I definitely got involved in the thread cause he put out a statement. It was like, if somebody could just make like a self-service meaning like, you know, just sign up, not have to go through the, the entire procurement process, just like sign up for whatever, a monthly subscription and do SAST on Go, Python, um, Node would be incredibly helpful. And it's funny because like, that's really currently what you said is our current, currently like our way to assess those applications is like to have things that you research for in the code base for those specific languages and whatever frameworks that are common with that language. And that's still the way that we do it. Like, there's no great, like, there's no breakman for, you know, we'll say, uh, Golang, Mux, no, uh, Node. You know, like, there's GoSec for Golang, but that's not the same thing. And um, results, eh. So, yeah, like, still the same old stuff works. Well, I mean, so if you want to dive headfirst into static analysis, like, static analysis is fiendishly difficult, right? I mean... In the early days, the ounce and Fortify tools really did an okay job with Java and .NET because those, you know, intermediate compilation steps like the um, 
you know, the bytecode was easy to go after. Um, but, you know, some of the other languages that are in, in binary or that just don't even compile are, that are more difficult to write a parser and an abstract abstract syntax tree. Boy, that's a mouthful. Um, and so you're left with basically semantic analysis, which is just fancy grep. Yeah. And, you know, so false positives are kind of off the charts. And yeah, so I mean, so some of the modern languages actually are not as easy to analyze as some of the old languages for that reason. Yeah, and that's always been the... I mean, that's the problem as we move into those dynamically typed languages, right? I, I know, I know we've, we've talked about it before when with Stefan as well about just the, like the complexity, um, the free form nature, right? I, I think what you're saying is exactly right is we move into like those old languages, use those, you know, the just in time compiling and the, um, yeah, that intermediate language, right? So that it could be portable that allowed for building of that abstract syntax tree and like express. And I mean, we just don't have anything that, that, that is that strongly typed in most of these new languages, right? Node or Go, it just, it doesn't exist. Um, so, I, I mean, whoever's gonna solve that problem is gonna, you know, make a mint basically, right? If they can do it, but I don't think there's any easy way to do it. Otherwise all of the, you know, your Fortify outs, you know, you know, yeah, any of those vendors would have already solved it if they could, I'm sure in an easy fashion, just so that they could take that step beyond where they're currently at. So the other thing I wanna uh, chip in on static analysis is I feel like the tools get a, get a bad rap. And I was actually the first one to say the phrase false positive, but I think a lot of folks kind of, um, like the first thing they think of when they think of static analysis is false positives. Um, and I kind of want to respond to that because um, well, having- Can we back up for a second? So, yeah, sure. for, so you said you're the first one to utter false positive. Does that mean, like, so were you part of the Today. initial- <laughs> oh, No, no, I mean on this show just now. I didn't invent oh, that. Oh, on either. this show, gotcha. No, no, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. No, sorry, I thought you were saying, I was like, wait. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was like, tell me the history of that. Okay, never mind. No, no, no. A false right. positive sorry, is like a, you know, a logic problem or like computer science problem term from, you know, the 50s or something or-, or Yeah, I was gonna say, if you the first person who dealt with that with tools and coined it, then like, I definitely wanna hear that story. So never mind. All right, cool. Yeah, no. Can't make that claim. Um, so, uh, so anyway, yeah, a lot of people think of think of the word false positive when they think of static analysis. And you know, in the early days, those those static analysis tools were designed to be used by guys like the, the three of us, or like you two, right? Like, so Fortify and Ounce Labs tools were basically like a harness through which an application security expert who knows how to code would do deep analysis. And so you would you would do semantic analysis and you do data flow analysis and you guys, your disposition when you're doing a review is, I don't wanna miss anything because missing something in this application is where I lose my career, right? And where the where the exploit happens. So well, I don't wanna scanner, miss anything critical for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah exactly. So the, what the scanner is doing is saying, okay, well, here, here are the, you know, suspicious calls, here are the, you know, traces and Basically, I'm going to be pretty proactive about throwing warnings and telling you where there's smoke so that you can evaluate where there's fire. But then, so now 
imagine that I transition from consulting to working at a static analysis vendor and I start to see how my customers think about it. And what the customers want to do is they want to take a code base, load it into a static analyzer, hit the easy button and get results out the other side. And anything that isn't actually a, a true positive, they're like, oh, this thing is just wasting my time, right? Because for them, you know, I want to dig deep and never miss anything isn't the disposition. They're like, you know, I, I only have so much time to get through this application. Um, and, you know, any time spent chasing false leads is, is a false positive, is a waste of my time. So it, that I think, I feel like the technology gets a bad rap because the users kind of interface with it differently. Than it was originally. Do, do they? Do, do, do the folks that come to you? They like. Is there so? Because you know, if their time is limited, do they want to see the results as security people, or is there the case where they're like, um, I'd rather have developers reviewing this, and so then that content has to be consumable directly for devs without it going through me. Oh yeah, I mean, these tools are used in, I guess, three different main ways. Right, so one way is you've got an application security expert like yourselves, or maybe application security expert in a COE reviewing an application and wanting to find everything. The other case is, you know, we're going to run it in the dev environment, and you know, the signal to noise ratio there has to be much better, right? Like basically, don't bother me unless you really have something. Um, and then the third kind of major case is let's just hook this thing directly into the continuous integration or the build pipeline. And there the signal, signal to noise ratio has to be amazing because if you start breaking builds and you're wrong, then now you're the bad guy, right? And then that's when, that's when the security department loses all the credibility with the engineers and the tool gets tossed out and they end up throwing the static analyzer under the bus. And it's like, a misapplication of technology as much as anything. Yeah, I, I mean that, that that's an interesting way to think about it, Eric. Like I hadn't like necessarily thought about like the the different use cases, but I do definitely like I've been in that different role in those different roles, right? Where we're trying to use the static analyzer for different purposes. Yeah, um, like implementing ounce or fortify back in the day with a in it in you know with a company there was always that confidence factor and depending on who was viewing the results that became crucial to 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 what was being displayed and what was coming out of the tool because you're right like as an appset guy i just want to see everything because i know really quick like how to distill something down like i've seen ounce like report like millions of things and I know like, hey, I can trace that tree really quickly and I see, all right, like it's missing this, this, and this, so I can ignore these, you know, 200 vulnerabilities and we can step through that really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. But if I block a build because of that, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm killing the whole business process. And I, like we would fine tune that list to, all right, there's these 10 things that we care about right now. That's what we're going to report on when, we, when it comes to the builds. But it does take that, application security purpose that or the application security person that understands the process and understands what's coming out of the tool in order to make those decisions um, 
And yeah. I think that that's probably where where we fall down quite a bit is we're trying we're trying to hit the easy button here with static analysis. So we're trying to just shoe, shoehorn something in. You hand it off to a development manager who's got some security idea, but it's never really done a lot. And they just implement it. And then they're like, ah, oh, crap, now it's coming out with 2,000 vulnerabilities every time that I run a scan. Let's just drop it because I don't have time or we're going to ignore it. And then it just falls by the wayside. So I have a recommendation. And then I have a contentious uh, shade throwing. Uh, Sweet. We like some uh, contention. Yeah, I know. We're going to get exciting here. So, so my recommendation for static analysis is actually the organization should have two static analysis programs. Okay, so one static analysis program is the the Seth and Ken. We're going to dig deep. We're going to find everything. This is like a um, high accuracy, but not very scalable um, expert exercise, right? And you're going to do this periodically on critical apps, post major changes, this kind of stuff. The other static analysis program that you're going to have is you're going to scan in the build. And the scan in the build can throw warnings if it wants to, but the signal to noise ratio for the automated unattended static analysis has to be extremely good, extremely accurate, and extremely cautious, right? Like false positives there are the enemy, whereas the review that you guys do, false negatives are the enemy. And a lot of organizations, they say, oh, we bought check marks, right? Or no, I don't mean to throw shit at check marks. Like, Oh, we bought you know a static analysis tool, so we use that static analysis tool, and they don't think of it as two separate processes, and they really have to be optimized differently because if you tune your static analyzer to the point where it is usable in the build, then it is useless for doing real security work, and if you tune your static analyzer to the point where it's useful for doing real security work, then you can't use it in a CI/CD pipeline, right? So yeah. I think a lot of organizations have figured that out, and a lot of organizations haven't figured that out. And I think that's a best practice that should be followed. Yeah, okay. I mean, now I'm going to throw you, a little bit of shade. I'll let you respond to that, and then I'll throw some shade. Yeah, yeah. so, and on that, that note, like, um, to give you an example, like, uh, so you four ounce, right? So you're familiar with the product. Like, that is a very much, that is very much a, like, skilled, in my opinion, and my experience, this is very much a skilled um, AppSec practitioner. The, the, the kind of case that you laid out where um, I'm going to fine tune that tool, I'm going to customize it, I'm going to make sure that it meets my needs. Um, it's, and the, the goal is to be thorough. And what I had seen was uh, once Ounce had been acquired by later, when Ounce had been acquired by, was that IBM or HP? IBM, 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 yeah, yeah, and then Fortify it was, it was HP. Right. So what I had seen was actually like um, organizations starting to try and get developers to run the tool, and they and there was training given, but it's like I don't know that that's the right. It's, it, it you know it wasn't necessarily you know this is probably twenty ten I want to say. Yeah. And the CI, the CI bit wasn't, I mean, it's, there were obviously places running CI for sure, but like um, that wasn't necessarily like the big product focus for a lot of these apps, uh, these um, AppSec tools. And so the, the idea was, well, we don't really have like, 
we have one or two develop or uh, sorry, security people. So like, let's train developers to use this tool. And it was just didn't in in the couple experiences I had with that it just didn't work out for that same like reason. Like, it's a very great tool. Like, ounces was a fantastic tool. I really enjoyed it, but it was also very hard, and you also had to like know it inside out. And 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 once you did, it was fantastic. But to hand that off to a developer and think like it's going to make sense for them and that they're going to be putting that into their daily workflow. I just didn't feel it was super realistic. And, and that's not a failing of the tool. That's to your point. That's a failing of the, the expectation of the tool. Yeah. So that is actually um, another version of the same story, right? It's like, okay, you actually need to have two static analysis programs in that case. You got to have your central COE doing the deep analysis and then if you're going to give it to developers, then you have to manicure it and create custom rules and um, enable them to, you know, know how to work with it and use it, and not expect them to be able to do the same kind of analysis that you did in the COE. Right? They want to hit the easy button and have a low signal to noise ratio, and you know, get some good results and kind of get back to work. So that's the same kind of thing. Actually, interestingly. That has been a big lesson learned for us in our in my current role too at Security Compass. We have another piece of enterprise software, and you know there is a self service decentralized aspect to its use. And we find that in organizations where you try to take a tool and move it from the COE out into a federated or distributed model, if you don't have real security champions on a team level where the developers have really gotten a lot of application security training, then tools like that, whether it's static analysis or our SD elements um, enterprise software, you, you often are difficult for the teams to pick up. So security champions can be um, kind of a precondition for successful automation rollouts of any kind. Yeah, I mean, that's where customer success managers totally come in and become... Um, really a way to push. Um, yeah, like it, it's good because it pushes adoption in the right direction based off of like, for instance, we're dealing with a, a good, I like the training vendor um, and we we've, were onboarded and I actually need to work with them to set up a uh, some time with our customer success manager, but um, they've got all these prior similar um, customers in both in like culture, size, et cetera, and goals. And like, it's nice because they're kind of just going to hand, hold our hand through that process to sort of like make sure our goals are, are met based off of like what they've seen, which I, yeah, I like. I think it's helpful. I think it's really helpful. Yeah. All right. So yeah. the, the shade that I wanted to, to throw was, um, was actually against the DevSecOps movement. And it's not. Um, which I know is like the sacred cow, right? At least I feel like everywhere <laughs> I go. What are you saying? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you ready? So yeah. DevSecOps is super great. I'm super a big fan of so much that it's doing, but I feel like there is a failure case that a lot of organizations are stepping into. And that is they think of scanning as synonymous with having a robust CI/CD pipeline, and they think of scanning as synonymous with having DevSecOps, right? Like they're like, oh, we have DevOps, we have this, you know, infrastructure as code and automatic deployment and provisioning of servers. 
okay, let's inject some security in there. We got to get a scanner. And then what they do is they start running the scanner every time they build, which could be multiple times per day, right? So now what you have is a scanner that's nerfed to the point where not only is it able to finish a scan multiple times per day, which right there should be a red flag, but secondarily, it has to find so few results that it doesn't halt the build. So basically what they've done is they've implemented these toothless do-nothing code scanners and they run them all the time and they're like look we're secure we we scan four times a day and it's like yeah okay but you're just looking for you know xp command shell or whatever like you know you're using some like you can, you lame... can do this faster with grep yeah yeah exactly you're using some completely lame analysis that's been uh defanged to the point where it's not actually doing much. And then you don't have a Seth or a Ken looking at the results because there's nothing to look at. And it's like, it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to do. Like that's good hygiene, right? You shouldn't be putting in, you know, banned functions into your, into your application, but that is in no way sufficient. Right. And I think the leaders of the DevSecOps movement completely understand that but the implementers of CI/CD pipeline, which are often developers, don't un, uh, quite get the nuance in how these multiple different kinds of static analysis should be um, best implemented. What was the yeah. intention, you think, of DevSecOps? Um, of the, you, you mentioned leaders versus implementers. What's the intention then, do you think, of the, the leaders? If you had to like classify just kind of like a, a few things that, they that would be good examples of what classifies as doing it properly DevSecOps. Well, I mean, you want to leverage automation to the extent possible. You want to replace. You want to you want to enable fast processes, right? So I was going to say you want to replace manual processes with automated processes, but really you want to supplement uh, those manual processes with automation. Um, you want to create virtuous feedback cycles, right? So anytime there's a lesson learned, you want to feed that back into, you know, your workflows, your training, uh, you know, the rule sets for your automated tools. So those virtual feedback cycles, or sorry, virtual feedback cycles, what the heck is that? Your, those feedback cycles are, um, you know, very important. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, organizationally, I think, I think of DevSecOps as, a person, right, or a team, as much as a development methodology, right? So, some of my customers are these huge blue chip companies, right, and they're um, very siloed, right? They have a dev organization, they have a security organization, and they have an ops organization, and like they might meet once a month, <laughs> you know, like they they report to different bosses, they have different budgets, you know, their their pay is motivated by different, you know, performance metrics. So they're not marching in the same direction necessarily. And, and in fact, almost never. So I think of as DevSecOps as like a person, right? Or a job role where it's like, okay, now we're going to use some of these techniques like the DevOps stuff, right? Automated deployment into Amazon and infrastructure as code and this kind of stuff, not just Amazon. Um, and DevSecOps, like, the sort of union of you know development 
practices, security practices, and um, operational tooling kind of all residing with the same, you know, group or person. So I kind of, I kind of think of it like a team more so than an an activity. Because like you can tell an organization that is structured to support DevSecOps as an, as opposed to an organization that is structured not to do that. Yeah. Is that just like, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I mean, I'm definitely thinking of like different organizations and I mean, the ones that we kind of, like we've talked about and we've had like Austin, well, or the guys from Netflix on the show before. Right. And they're, Mm -hmm. they're definitely geared towards that. Like what, what you're saying is DevSecOps. It's not a, Hey, here's, you know, I implemented a scanner and that's it. It's like, Hey, we have this whole pathway. We make it really easy for developers to do things the right way. We train, we discuss, we let them know when there's a problem. So it's not just this like single you know point of failure for, for, for security in that you know pipeline. Um, but I do see most of the organizations that I go into, I think is similar to you, Eric, where it's just so disparate between security and development that there's not really a DevSecOps team. There may be a group that meets once, you know, once in a while to talk about it, but it definitely doesn't align. Uh, and when you were talking about scanning tools as well, like in the DevSecOps pipeline, I think part of the problem that we've had is the the recognition of what is true kind of analysis in the DevSecOps cycle um, or what tools are appropriate, right? Like doing, some, doing a de- dependency scan for CVEs is a great thing. But that doesn't that doesn't equate to a fortify, right? Like, but I can't tell you the number of times that I walk into something, they're like, oh, we've got this great scanner in place, and it turns out it's dependency checker, something similar to that that yeah. they've implemented. And I'm like, no, you, you I mean, that's great, and you should be doing that. Absolutely. And that's the right place to do it, to check for those vulnerabilities and for those CVEs. But you can't claim to me that your code is secure because you are, you know, making sure that you aren't using outdated libraries, right? That's right. That's not an equivalency that I, I accept. But. Yeah, I mean, I worked with a customer that ran Nmap in the build process against their web application every time they built, and I was like, "That's good." If for some reason your application starts listening on a new port, you would want to know that because that would be a problem. But that is in no way sufficient right necessary but not sufficient is what they say yep so the things that i'm focused on these days are um training which leads into that security champions conversation and then this sd elements platform which is like oh my gosh it is difficult to categorize because it does so many different things but i see it as like a necessary linchpin in um security champions and in DevSecOps programs. Um, so like speaking of that, right? Cause SD elements has come up before, right? And like sure. in some of my discussions with clients, like especially in relationship to something like, you know, Defect Dojo and um, what is it? Uh, thread fix, right? Um, so can you give us just kind of a short rundown of what SD Elements does, right? I, I know that like that's a lot to ask given you know the no, size. I'll, and, I'll know, take a swipe at it. Take a swipe, yeah. Yeah, so um, forgive me if I sound a little bit like a, a, a wind-up toy just going on autopilot mode here, but <laughs> you know, the, 
the so-called elevator pitch has gotten a little too practiced. So ST Elements basically begins with um, a really big knowledge base. And the knowledge base has uh, secure coding best practices, privacy controls, and information about regulatory frameworks and the kinds of controls that have to be built into an application in order to meet adherence to those regulatory frameworks, right? So first of all, you've got this big knowledge base. Uh, then, um, in order for this kind of secure coding guideline to be useful to an organization, you have to have some way to uh, filter the wheat from the chaff and identify the controls that are appropriate for a given application, right? So imagine I'm an application owner. Um, if I'm building a Java client server application, I'm going to have very different a set of security and privacy controls than somebody who's building an iPhone application that you know handles credit cards or something, right? So you kind of profile your application by completing a questionnaire or a survey. It's very short. It's like you know what language are you writing in? What kind of architecture are you implementing? What kind of data are you handling? What jurisdictions will your application operate in? And based on those answers, um, ST Elements will identify the security and privacy and regulatory controls that are needed to make that application properly, right? And then those controls are uh, shared in a, in a very DevSecOps-friendly way bi-directionally with ALM tools like Jira and uh, HPLM and Rational CLM and the Microsoft Visual Studio Team Services, which has just changed its name to Azure something, Azure DevOps maybe. Um, and um, from there, the development organization can build the application with those controls kind of front of mind and at their fingertips. Um, they can receive uh, training at that time, right? So these controls, when I, when I talk about the different controls that are identified by SD Elements, I'm not just talking about a list of you must do this in the application, right? Each one of these um, articles basically is a, Here's a you know, weakness in the application that you need to mitigate. Here is the mitigating control. Here is the code sample for how to mitigate it. Here's a video that you know, talks about, about that issue in depth. Um, and then interestingly, because we have started from a master list of controls, we can also integrate with the static and dynamic analysis tools in order to verify that each one of them was implemented correctly. And the extent to which those tools don't check for one of the controls, we can grind out a QA plan and say, you're gonna have to have a human or build some other automation to check for the proper implementation of this control because your SAS and DAS pipeline don't have proper checks for these. Yeah, they don't support it. And, so, then, and then there's a whole audit workflow too. You can generate reports against you know various taxonomies. Yeah, so it feels like you've actually, you know, or like the SD Elements platform is starting up front with the, the whole kind of like requirements and design phase of this is what your app looks like. Mm -hmm. This is the threat model that exists. We already know that these are the, you know, this is what these sorts of applications typically are required to you know be compliant with 
So it's got to be, there's got to be some sort of a check there, and then it'll tie into the tooling when you get to that point to actually check and see whether or not you are covering all of those things. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really tricky. Like, you know, we don't really fit into a clean, you know, category of tools. Yeah. Like, there's, there's no name for this type of software. So a lot of people look at SD Elements as a threat modeling solution, which is interesting right so it's not the kind of threat modeling that seth and ken would do on an engagement where you have you know two you know domain experts digging deep into an application and really spending time and developing a refined model it's automated scalable lightweight threat modeling that focuses on the domain agnostic threats not the domain specific threats right does that make sense yeah um and a lot of people look at it as knowledge management, right? Because in this knowledge base, you have from the factory a couple thousand articles on how to prevent everything from server-side template injection to XML entity injection to LDAP injection to whatever. But if you are a particular organization, like, like let's say you're GitHub, right? At GitHub, when we implement single sign-on, we use SAML, and we use this SAML provider, and we use this framework, right? So you can customize that knowledge base and create those virtuous feedback cycles and use it as your um, single source of truth for not just how to build applications technically, but also in a way that satisfies the privacy and policy needs of the business, right? So then some people think about this as a policy to execution platform, right? So that's a word that we made up, right? But it's basically like GRC for software, right? So imagine you're an organization and you're like, we have policies that we want our developers to adhere to, right? Like if you're going to collect information about, let's just say PII, right? If you're going to gather PII, then we want to, you know, make sure that you encrypt it when you store it and we want to make sure that you tell the user what you're collecting and then we want to make sure that you you know don't sell it without getting permission and whatever your policies are you can build those kinds of policies into this knowledge base and then use this threat modeling like workflow on on the front end to figure out okay well for this application these policies are in scope and for this application they're not in scope right so it's yeah, this I mean, whole it's, automation, yes, it's this yeah. crazy automation orchestration platform that really ties together the privacy and policy and security teams with the engineering teams who actually have to build stuff and the auditors who have to validate that stuff was built. Yeah, that's. I mean, it feels a lot like glue for an organization, right? To actually yeah. <laughs> tie, the, tie these disparate pieces together. Yeah, I mean, somebody's, doing, somebody's doing that at every large organization. They have to, right? No, no, somebody's no. Like, actually, they don't. Oh. <laughs> I, um, I mean, they should be doing it, right? You know, yeah. I, I'm thinking back to my time at the bank and stuff like that. Like, definitely, the compliance guys would come around and they would ask, and they were trying to do policy mapping, um, and and then control checking after they had done the policy mapping, and um, but right. it so wasn't. Let's, so, yeah. so let's dig into that a little bit. So, you know. Somebody would come by and they're like, I'm a, you know, I'm an SSA 16, you know, yep. to sock one otter or whatever. And I have this list of controls, you know, and then they and then they basically 
come to the security guy or the development organization and they say, okay, well, you know, did you do this? Did you do this? How does your application do this, right? But then six months later, somebody would come by and they'd say, you know what, I'm gonna do a PCI report on compliance and I got this list of questions for you, right? And then, and then later somebody would come by and say, okay, we have to do NIST 853 as an organization, right? So now we've got all these, and you're like, but I just answered this, right? So if you had an automated system where you could say, my application does handle customer data and my application does do financial transactions, then this automated system could merge together all these different frameworks into a single questionnaire, a single set of controls, and then the developers would have a consolidated set of controls to develop against, and the auditors could, you know, ask the question, you know, show me what they did through the lens of PCI or through the lens of SSA 16, right? So that comment that organizations need to do this is, is interesting because, you know, how does this work in most of your clients, right? They, they either don't do this at all, or they have, you know, they have coding standards that a, a very brilliant person wrote, but nobody maintains in a Word document or a wiki that's not connected to JIRA. It doesn't actually do anything for the developers. Um, and then for each release, they're like, oh, we came up with a list of requirements, but we track them in Excel, and they just email an Excel file around, and it's just like, so it's it's crazy. It's crazy how much organizations do without really thinking about how they should orchestrate how the, their different teams should work together. Like oh yeah, I mean it definitely is. I mean, and that that kind of leads back to what you you know your career path right as you go more into the automation right. side and you, the management side that that it that sort of thing makes so much sense and would make. The technical side, like our life, so much easier. I, I know most of the assessments that I still do. It's it's kind of that like eighty percent manual model, right? Is you know I, like I will dig in, and we'll run some tools for about twenty percent of the time, but most of it is still manual. And there's you know I've developed scripts and things like that to automate portions of it. Um, but especially as you kind of get to that higher level, you know, requirements that you're talking about, I. Like I, I rarely see any automation, you know, um, or the automation is we take the results from this spreadsheet and we drop it into another one, right? That that that's about the the extent of of, of what exists out there. Um, I mean, oh, yeah. that has hooks into so much of an organization's, like you know, you're you're talking Jerry, you're talking policy documentation, you're talking all these different like groups, disparate groups, and trying to pull them together. Have you guys had good success? getting everyone aligned and using SD elements in that way? Um, like what have the challenges there been? Yeah, so whenever you introduce a system like this that creates meaningful collaboration between multiple groups, multiple stakeholders, there's a big element of culture change, right? So we're not just like replacing one static analyzer with another, another static analyzer. We're not just like, you know, running a tool like, you know, um, dependency check, right, that tells you, oh, you have a CV in your jar file. Um, you know, there's a big element of culture change here, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you have top level policy directives being translated into very low level code snippets, 
right? So how do you get all those different players on the same page? And, you know, honestly, for years, we kind of trusted the clients to do it, right? We, we would basically show them our software and show them how it would work and what it would do. And then we said, okay, well, yeah, you know, you should have, you know, this kind of person answering the threat modeling like questionnaire. And you should have, you know, engineers triaging the, the output that comes from SD elements and applying it to their backlog. Um, but it took us a couple years to realize that we actually need to have like enterprise deployment services because organizations um, don't know how to mend fences. They don't know how to work cross-functionally um, well enough to make a system like this really flourish. So our... We, our services organization is a mix of like, yeah, we'll just install it and set it up and, you know, connect it to your Jira and, you know, integrate it and, and help you localize the content and the knowledge base. Um, but also there's a, there's an element of organizational transformation, which is a, a higher order problem. It's a layer eight problem, right? As you'd say in the OSI. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we've kind of become kind of counselors for that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I know over the course of my career, that's what it feels like, too. Like, you know, I started out doing more low-level technical stuff. And as you you kind of move and get experience dealing with all these different organizations, it does feel like you step back from that and become a counselor around, you know, how someone actually implements process. Yeah. I mean, the same thing happened in static analysis in the early days, right? You know, you could show somebody a really nice static analyzer. And if they deployed it improperly, then they would, you know, generate a bunch of false positives and lose credibility with a development organization. And before you know it, there's a rift between security and dev. And then there's a rift between security and the static analysis vendor, right? Mm -hmm. And then they throw it, they throw it out. So, um, so yeah, that, that org, that, that element of organizational change is, something that I'm really interested in because it's a, it's a challenging problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I doubt it's something we're going to solve on the podcast today, but you know, <laughs> any ideas that people have for sure, because it's, you know, you're talking about behavioral change and not just, Hey, there's this technical solution for what, what we're trying to accomplish. We're actually trying to, to instigate change, you know, in people rather than in code or whatever else. I mean, that fits into the training stuff that, you know, we haven't really talked about, but I think we're running out of time today. So um, if I can finish on one thing, um, sure. I want to kind of wrap up on this element of culture change. And so I'm going to kind of paraphrase something that this gentleman named Bevan, who works in the field of safety, um, said to us once. He said, you know, if you're in the central safety organization at an enterprise and you want your factory workers or your warehouse workers to be more safe, right? To do safety. You have to create a climate and a culture that enables it. And at a, at a high level, there are a couple things that are necessary for that to succeed. One is top level executive support that says, we are going to do this. Right, we are going to become an organization that values safety, or we're going to become an organization that values software security. Right? Uh, then you have to provide them with the tools that make it possible 
for them to actually do it, right? So it's one thing to say, yeah, we're going to be an organization that's going to be safe. But if you're not giving people hard hats and harnesses and gloves, then they're just going to continue to do their job without any kind of protective equipment. And in our field, if you say we're going to do security, but then you don't give them workable tools, then, you know, what are they going to do, right? They're just going to keep doing their job the way they have been doing it. Um, and then once you've given them that top level statement of support and you've empowered them to actually do it by giving them the right tools, then and only then can you expect them to go forward with security front of mind or safety front of mind, right? And contribute back to the program, right? And, and then be, you know, eyes on the ground, leaders in their area, people who think of security as my responsibility, not just that guy over there is responsible for security, right? So I really like this idea of like a three-step process for culture change. Anyway. Yeah, it's, you know, becoming security enablers is, is really what it, it boils down to, for sure. Um, well, good. Like, yeah, we've been going for an hour. Um, I know Ken's kind of got a hard time, or I, I do too. Like, we've both kind of got hard stops today. Um, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, honestly, you know, if you're interested, we'd love to have you back on sometime and maybe we'll actually get to, you know, talk about just in time training and some of the other stuff. But it's been sure. very interesting. It's been great to catch up. Uh, you know, yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, I would love that. I'm, uh, I'm available. We'll, we'll okay. sort it out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we, right. we, we try not to make it too onerous. We won't like ask you on next week, right? It'll be like three weeks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So it's really been a lot of fun today. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, good, good luck with the rest of your day here. Yeah, yeah. you too. Ken, anything else that we need to wrap up before we, uh, we call it for today? No, just a big thank you. And uh, I really would actually like a, a well, I shouldn't say really what, that sounds weird. I really want to do a follow-up to this. Actually, I think that you, that we have more stuff to discuss that could, uh, yeah, we need a part two. It's clear. We need a part two. To this, so. <laughs> we, we definitely need a part two. So yeah, Eric, we'll follow up with you. Um, watch out for it. Uh, again, hit us up on Twitter. Oh, Eric, before we jump off anywhere that you're going to be in the short term that people could meet up with you? Uh, the only things I know about are Black Hat USA in Vegas and OWASP AppSec USA in DC in September. Okay. Um, other than that, it's probably just LinkedIn is the best way to find me, honestly. Great, great. So find Eric on LinkedIn. Um, otherwise, find me and Ken on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Slack, and enjoy the rest of your day. Let us know if you've got any other feedback or anything else. Um, but again, thanks again. Thanks for joining. All right. Bye guys. Thanks.